Hello and welcome to The Vasey View, the podcast that marries the world of tech with the world of public policy. Every fortnight I shine a spotlight on an individual or even a country or an industry that's big in tech and try to tease out what lessons policymakers can learn. I've explored government policies in France, Holland, Israel and Estonia. I've met companies involved in cyber and defence and I've looked at issues such as diversity in tech and deep fakes. I started this series with a wide-ranging interview with a big tech thinker, Benedict Evans, and I also talked to Tony Blair halfway through the series, who I also regard as a big tech thinker. So I thought it a good idea to end it with another exceptional UK-based tech thinker. Before I introduce him, the usual podcast plea. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and give us five stars and get in touch if there are themes you want me to explore in series two. Azim Azar is the founder and author of Exponential View, a newsletter which concentrates primarily on technology, business models, the political economy and society, and is subscribed by hundreds of thousands of keen techies. Azim is on a mission to explain how our societies and ways of life will change under the force of exponential technologies. He's determined to bring together the two cultures of innovation and tech and of business, society and policy and help us understand the real implications of the changes we are witnessing. He does this from the vantage point of over 25 years in the industry as an entrepreneur, investor, and analyst. So you can see why I'm so excited to have him as my guest for the finale of season one of The Vasey View. Azim, welcome. Welcome, Ed. I'm so humbled by your introduction. I think you must have been on the phone with my mum earlier this week <laughs> by, by the sounds of things. She did call me earlier and say, make sure you get all this right. But no, uh, Azim and I have known each other for a couple of years and uh, he is, you are, <laughs> I better remember you're here. Yes. You are one of the most articulate and forward thinking thinkers on tech. So Azim has made a number of predictions for the next decade, and he's very, very good at uh, marking his homework. Uh, he made them in January 2020, and he's come back in the summer of 2020 to see how he's doing. But he and I both thought that we can't spend the entire podcast getting through so many different predictions. So we're just going to focus on the three C's, collaboration, competition, and computation. So let's start with collaboration. Yes, I, I mean, the, the theme of collaboration is a really interesting one, um, and it was prompted rightly by uh, the start, the arrival of a virus that was being called 2019 NCOV uh, back in January, early February. Uh, and I started to think about um, how are scientists going to respond to uh, this emerging threat. Um, and we don't think a lot about collaboration in the uh, in the international environment these days because the, the vernacular is so aggressive and so zero sum. But but I think we do need to recognise that, that what's happened in the response to COVID has really brought to the forefront lots of the super things that are going on in collaboration. Uh, you know, I, one of my favourite examples uh, was the dashboards that were created by Johns Hopkins University for free very, very early on to track the growth of COVID cases back when there were only six cases in France is the first uh, screenshot of it that I have. And what we've also seen has been um, a tremendous sharing open science uh, 
academics have actually published more than 20,000 papers uh, looking at COVID, the disease itself, its genomics, how it plays out in the body, uh, looking at the epidemiology of it, looking at how people recover from it. Um, and it's an incredible feat of scientific collaboration, mostly being made widely accessible through the mechanisms of open science. Um, and, and I think that 2020, for all of the tough things that have happened, will raise in people's mind the importance of the tools of collaboration for tackling big problems. And of course, coronavirus is not the only big problem we have to deal with. So tell us what you mean by open science. So uh, open science is the idea that the scientific endeavour, um, the the uh, scientists working on it, their results, their experimental methods, the process of the uh, review of their, their findings should happen in a more openly accessible uh, fashion, as opposed to the way that it's happened certainly increasingly over the last 30 years, which is that it happens behind closed doors and the results are published um, in academic journals that are normally charged for at a really, really high rate. So the companies like Reed Elsevier have made a lot of money uh, with quite punitive uh, subscriptions to scientific journals. And, and it's been a really um, big issue uh, in terms of distributing this, this knowledge. The idea that w was really to say, look, science is a human endeavour and science is often funded by governments. It's a public resource. And so we should make the science available. And about the time that Stephen was thinking about this, um, a young physicist in uh, in America by the name of Paul Ginsparg uh, had this idea that, that why not publish physics papers before they've gone through the peer review process? Because the peer review process would take two to three years. And that actually slows down the process of discovery because you're waiting for, for this, this very important uh, method of review to, to play out. Uh, and so back in 1991, he started to publish uh, and collate uh, early research from physics papers um, in something he called archive, uh, AR, the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X, IV. Uh, and this was really before uh, the web was, was particularly popular. I mean, Tim Berners-Lee had developed that a couple of years earlier. Uh, and Essentially, he, he started to publish this uh, on a, on a pre-web format. Uh, and since that time, archives, what we call preprint servers, they are servers delivering academic research before it's gone to print, have sprung up in many other domains, in the biomedical sciences, in chemistry, in computer science, in psychology. And they have become an incredibly powerful way for accelerating the rate with which academic research makes its way into the eyes of other academics who can challenge it, build on it, and quite importantly, fundamentally transfer it into industry where these techniques can be put to good use. So that's the idea of open science is to really um, make this process that was otherwise quite opaque and quite slow into one which allows a lot of sunlight, a lot of eyes, and a lot of helping hands uh, in. So I'm always fascinated by this because I, represented in Parliament, a constituency that <clears throat> had a huge amount of science in it. And I was always struck by the fact that you could walk through the doors of these uh, scientific buildings. I mean, we had a Hadron Collider in my constituency, for example, and you would see scientists from every nation in the world. I think at one point I even 
found Iranians and Israelis working uh, alongside each other. And science does have this uh, ability to transcend national rivalries. And I think even on things like nuclear fusion, for example, the Ch Chinese and the US put money into these big, big uh, experiments working uh, together. It is phenomenal. But I, I wonder how recent a phenomenon it is. I mean, my impression is that universities and scientists do seem to be able to collaborate despite how infantile their governments might be behaving towards each other. Well, uh, it, it isn't a recent phenomenon. It's got, it's got accelerated. I think we can go back or more than 100 years to a really famous collaboration. And it was at a, a, another very similar moment in history where a large power started to get a bit cross with a, an, an upcoming a burgeoning power. And that burgeoning power was uh, being rather nationalistic. And this is around the time of the turn of the 20th century uh, and the, the new sort of German state, the Prussians and, and, and Britain. And coming out of Germany, you had the work of um, Albert Einstein. Uh, and his breakthrough, his breakthrough work was happening in the shadow of the militarization that led up to, to World War I. And what's quite fascinating is that, that even as some scientists, for example, uh, Fritz Haber, uh, who invented the, um, the process for fixing uh, ammonia uh, out of uh, atmospheric nitrogen, uh, certain scientists militarized and they went and helped their, their, their armies. This happened in, in Britain and it happened in Germany. And other scientists tried to keep the spirit of, of international humanistic scientific collaboration alive. Now, the fascinating thing here is that, is that Einstein came up with certain findings uh, at, which were verified by Stanley Eddington, a, a, a Brit who never met him, uh, with this famous experiment where he went off and observed an eclipse from two opposite parts of the Earth. And so somehow there was a group of scientists in, you know, in this particular domain, it's physics, uh, Einstein the theoretician with Eddington doing the experiments, who still collaborated despite the backdrop of that incredibly nationalistic and very, very horrible and bloody war that was was taking place. So I, I mean, I do think that scientists um, step across those boundaries because they're in pursuit of a a more a, a greater truth, perhaps a more universal truth. And we see it increasingly today. I mean, you talk about the Large Hadron Collider. We also had the um, the, the LIGO uh, experiment, which was the the one that identified of gravitational waves, which involved 1,100 scientists collaborating in nearly every every country, uh, and and so I think all of this takes place against this incredible backdrop of of science. And when we talk talk think about um, the the coronavirus, um, you know, the Chinese researchers initially sequenced uh, that virus within a few days of the outbreak starting in Wuhan, and we we don't really know when it started. And they made available digital uh, versions of the genomic data uh, within a matter of a couple of weeks. Uh, and, and so you still see this notion that there is a purpose that, that reaches over you know, the very worst aspects of, of, of national sovereignty. I mean, there are many good aspects of it, but there are some that are a little bit too competitive at moments like this. We are going to talk about competition in a moment. And we're also going to talk about computation, which is going to be the great sort of exponential technology that 
see some of these discoveries, but just sticking on collaboration for a minute. I mean, where do you see, I get the sense that you think that COVID has kind of accelerated this kind of um, open source collaboration, even though we, we've had the announcement quite recently of the Pfizer vaccine, which could arguably kind of fit in the competition silo. Well Pfizer were the first, first, potentially the first to market with it. And famously, the Russians were claiming they had a vaccine first. But do you see this kind of collaboration perhaps catalyzed by COVID? Got to stick to all the C's as much as we can here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you see kind of big, I mean, is the focus mainly on, do you see kind of big health gains? Where do you see the kind of collaboration leading us in terms of benefits for mankind? Well, I, th I think uh, one of the things that we'll take away from this year is that scientific collaboration is uh, incredibly important uh, and that it's accelerated the speed with which we've been able to tackle this, this threat. And that will create a, a story, a narrative. And I think narratives are very important at these moments of very fast technology change of that we can address collective threats through the process of collaboration and that there are, are there are places where the iron fist of withholding don't really apply and science seems to be one of them but but there are other aspects of collaboration i think that are that are important i mean one is the uh, idea of open source which is open source software and this is um, you know software which is developed in the public domain um, it is not proprietary it normally has attached to it um, legal terms that allow anyone to use it for free and often anyone to modify it for free and open source as a uh, as a as a method of creating technologies has been again with us since the um, sort of early years of the uh, the broader internet which is sort of the the, the 80s and the 90s uh, and many of the tools that we use today in advanced technology, many of the machine learning and artificial intelligence tools like uh, PyTorch and TensorFlow, I mean, your listeners don't need to know what they, they are, but they're sort of the sophisticated tools you use to make um, machine learning models have been open sourced. Uh, within a few days of uh, coronavirus starting to spread, the Chinese technology company Baidu um, opened its RNA prediction algorithm, which is called LinearFold, to global researchers. And this allowed people to uh, more rapidly research the ge genetic structure of this uh, particular disease. So we, we, what we're starting to see is that the idea of, of collaborating rather than enclosing key resources pays significant dividends. And I think from a historical context, as somebody who's steeped in internet culture, I mean, internet culture, the internet itself had a design that was very, very collaborative. You know, from starting from the 70s and 80s, we all sort of chipped in our computing and network resources, and that built the internet. Uh, and that's why you have this strong uh, open source uh, backdrop to what a lot of what happens. Um, and, and and I think we need those stories because since the 19, late 1960s and early 1970s, um, a lot of the discussion around, um, you know, the structure of our political economies was essentially to say that there was only 
the state or the market and the market did things better. So we should take things from the state. And that's really the story of monetarism and and sort of Friedman and Sir Keith Joseph and so on. Um, and it ignored non-market, non-state areas of organization and collaboration, what we might call the commons. And I'm sure many listeners are familiar with um, the idea of the tragedy of the commons, uh, which was the idea that essentially, unless you had the the state mandating through duress cooperation or the market creating profit incentives for cooperation, any common resource would get eaten away by this, by sort of bad behavior, by free riding, essentially. And that paper was really, really um, influential. Unfortunately, it was largely wrong. And it's it's been demonstrated to be wrong, both in terms of real natural commons, like fishing rights and rivers and resources, but also been wrong in technology and scientific development, because open source is essentially a commons, the commons repository that's called InfluenzaNet, uh, which is a a common platform for European nations to share influenza data. Those things shouldn't exist as a tragedy of the commons, but in fact they do. And so I'm I'm quite excited about more structures that are not mandated by states, not powered by the market, that allow us to share and collaborate to reach common goals. And I and I'm and I'm put my hat, my marker in the sand now to say that we'll look back at the collaboration around COVID and I, and I think we'll take that forward and say we can do this in other areas. Well, if I was being blunt about it, the, the entire endeavour uh, of uh, the West, if you like, during my tenure as a minister, which was in the 2010s, the first half of the 2010s, was to keep uh, the Chinese at bay in the sense of not wanting to have uh, governmental institutions regulating the internet to try and keep internet regulation as dissipated as possible. But I think with the Chinese firewall and so on, uh, we have moved inexorably towards effectively two internets, possibly three, uh, which won't, where we will lose the extraordinary benefits we've had of a sort of global uh system i mean i think we're still holding on and all is not lost but that is the sort of direction of travel so that was that is what is changing i have to say that in terms of tech regulation i don't think things are so different nor do i think are they necessarily something to be worried about i mean i think for example the uk is pressing ahead just to get very parochial with its online harms bill, which is a first attempt, and many in the tech community will deride it, but a first attempt to at least address some of the harms brought about by social media. And that strikes me as quite a good catalyst for uh, jurisdictions like the US to look at models that potentially uh, could be used by them. So in essence, I think competition can be a good thing because it accelerates, it often accelerates change in other jurisdictions. If you see one jurisdiction forging ahead. For example, you know, one of the great ironies, for example, is the data protection regulations put in by the European Union. 20 years ago, they were seen as a terrible bureaucratic imposition on business, and perhaps they still are. But nevertheless, because of the tech clash, they're now seen potentially as a model for other countries to follow. So I think, in essence, my view, and, you know, I referred earlier to the AI tech arms race, picking up from what you've written in the past, that can be a good thing. Um, 
it's yeah. quite a business competition. Yeah, it's it is it is interesting. I mean, I I, I haven't thought about it the way that um, with the way that you have in terms of the competition creating creating better outcomes. And I, and I, I think there is something to be said for this idea that 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 the competition forms a process. Um, it's a bit messy. Um, but it's but but often politics is messy, uh, and even getting to a good outcome may mean may mean a messy process. Um, wh- one of the ways that I look at these questions is to ask about the you know the nature of the internet itself, and it was really a a gift from the American military and research establishment in in the nineteen sixties, uh, and and. It's a tremendous, tremendous gift, but any technology is framed by the perspective and uh, priorities of of the framers, um, and and even though it was a gift, it wasn't manna from heaven or it didn't sort of you know appear like a, a monolith in two thousand and one, um, which in in itself was also designed, of course, but um, it it was a designed system, and in that designed system. It had things that um, then turned into uh, political statements. So um, John Perry Barlow, who was one of the great fighters for internet rights and uh, a lyricist for the Grateful Dead, uh, back in in 2000 at Davos, the World Economic Forum, presented the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. Uh, And so back then we were thinking, well, maybe there'll be other rules that apply in in cyberspace and it can sit across territorial uh, sovereignty. And for a long time, um, governments were willing to go along with that or incapable of doing anything but go along with that. And and a few governments, um, uh, you know, the US obviously had had a lot of capability and the Chinese and the Germans started to say, we want this to run slightly differently. So of course the Germans, we think about the Chinese and their, their firewall, but the Germans, um, more than 20 years ago, uh, started to ensure that their their denazification laws were applied on internet services like eBay. So I think exactly. there's al- there's always been a sort of a national perspective to to the internet, and we're we're waking up to that now. And and here's a sort of dirty secret about about the internet. It's not sorry, it's not as dirty I think as some <laughs> listeners might be hoping for, um, but. <laughs> The the internet is a network of networks, and each of those networks is defined by something called an AS, an autonomous system. So every network that connects to the internet is actually, in its nomenclature, an autonomous system and is meant to be able to apply its own um, routing policies within that autonomous system. And what the internet really um, describes, the protocols describe, is how those autonomous systems can interrelate, interact with each other. So what is their point of commonality? And so the heart of the internet has always um, been built with this notion of self-organization and this notion that um, essentially you can sort of do what you want within your own autonomous system, but just... uh, encourage some interactions between them um, in a standard way. And I think what we're starting to learn 30 years on is that in in reality, territorial sovereignty uh, still matters. Now, the thing that makes me concerned is that there's there are legitimate concerns uh, and then there are concerns that um, governments are likely to 
pull on because we're not allowed to inspect them. So legitimate concerns might be, I need to think about the data protection of my citizens because having their data exposed creates specific harms for them. It might be that criminal activity might happen over the internet. Um, but that it might be that people are using the internet to sort of avoid taxes. But the thing that governments often ultimately use because they know that we're not allowed to inspect those motives is they use the national security lens. And they say, because of national security, we are going to have to do this. And we can't allow you to question that. And in a sense, that's what happens within China. They sort of talk about state harmony and, and that is their, their use. But but in the West, we're willing to use that same excuse. So um, at the turn of the millennium, there were moves in the US, uh, for legislative moves to increase the data protection rights of citizens. And after the attacks in 9-11, those got dropped and the Patriot Act and then a whole set of executive orders allowed for much, much more invasive access to citizens' data under the grounds of national security. And so one of the things that concerns me is that whatever checks and balances we have, when a nation state pulls a national security card, it means that we, we can't scrutinize it the way we otherwise uh, otherwise might do. And, 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 I we, think and we're seeing it with encryption at the moment. We just, yeah, we're seeing, we're seeing it with encryption at the moment. We can't, we can't challenge that. And, um, and, and I think part of the problem is that uh, that's not really the way that you build uh, democratically accountable states, what you're actually doing is providing more fiat power, quite dangerous fiat power to your security apparatus. Um, yeah. And I think there must be a better model for that. But you talk about, so tell me about your, this theory you have, the AI, about the AI arms race. What are the implications of the AI tech arms race? And, and you make this provocative comment that it's different from the nuclear <laughs> arms race. Yeah. yeah, it is. So what's really, what is, what is AI? I mean, I think AI is, um, the most powerful technology that we've seen for a, a long time. Um, and it is a general purpose uh, technology, which means that it can be used in many, many different industries. And within each industry, it can be used to do many, many different things. Um, and the, the current nature of AI or computation, which I think are very similar things, um, is that they're improving in their capability um, at, at these exponential rates, the classic exponential technology, which means it gets 20, 30, 40, 50% better by whatever way you measure it every year. Um, and, and so the, the other thing about AI is that um, as you, as most of the ways in which we build these systems now depend on data, the sooner you build a, a, a service using AI, the sooner that service gathers data about how well it works and the quicker it then it can improve. So there is a, a real advantage to um, having lots of data, being able to get these systems out into the market where they can get more data. Uh, and because it's such a powerful technology and technologies have always created competition. I mean, let's just think about, you know, battleships and dreadnoughts uh, 120 years ago. Uh, but this particular one, um, has a, a flywheel, a, a self-reinforcing cycle in them, which means that early advantage will confer much, much greater later, later advantage or could. The reason I think it's different to the nuclear arms race is that um, however expensive and rare um, AI skills might be and the data and the computation to build it might be, it's just so much cheaper than 
trying to build a nuclear weapon. I mean, a nuclear weapon is still an activity that um, only a very, very committed state can engage in. Uh, just the simple process of acquiring the yellow cake and then filtering it and purifying it and taking out the uranium-235 through the centrifuges is a really hard activity. And large you know, nations that are, are rich by historical standards like Iran have really struggled to do this. But there, there's a couple of other issues um, with thinking about the AI arms race compared to the nuclear arms race that we saw between the Soviet Union and America. Um, with the nuclear arms race, at, at the end of the day, there was the threat of mutually assured destruction that kept people honest. So it was the end of, of war games, if you remember that wonderful film with Matthew Broderick from 1983, uh, which combi combined AI and nuclear weapons. Right? Showing yeah. our age there, yeah. We're showing our age. Our oh, youth, uh, Ed. <laughs> you had this threat of um, mutual assured destruction that, that kept people honest. And I think there's also finally a um, a point about the real context. In that battle between... Um, uh, in the Cold War between the Eastern Bloc and the the Western Bloc, and you know, anchored by the US, apart from a couple of scares, um, the scare around um, the Soviet industrial output and the scare around Sputnik, for for a large period of time, it became increasingly clear that the Western model was doing better than the socialist communist model. Uh, and certainly by, by the 70s and 80s, you know, with, with defectors and um, you could just see it in the, uh, in the standard of living and the, the GDP. Now, here's what, where we sit in the, um, it, with the AI arms race. The first is that, you know, AI confers this dramatic advantage early on and it is applicable, not just in the threat of killing your, your enemy. It can be used to just improve you know, cancer diagnosis or loan approvals. The second is that it's not a state level activity. It is, it is a, a, you know, two kids in a garage level activity all the way up to large companies can do it. Yeah. And, and the third is the context is that it's, I don't think it's abundantly clear that the Western model will naturally deliver better economic returns than the, this sort of state mandated capitalism model that we see in China. Yeah, and, and that I think creates a a, a different playing field. I, I don't know if that any of that rings true to you. But um, where does this all go then? I mean, uh, it's a sort of uh, I don't want to stretch the analogy too far, but it's almost like a sort of dirty bomb analogy. I mean, I think what you're saying is that um, in essence, it's a call for vigilance. I mean, I did a podcast earlier in the year with Nina Schick about deep fakes, mm. and it sort of goes back to tech regulation, which we've only talked about in terms of competition but as you say two kids in a garage I mean I was very struck by the fact that it was in theory a kid in a garage who seized control of the Twitter account of Barack Obama and I thought well you know what if he had seized control of the Twitter account of Donald Trump and announced that uh, the US was at war with North Korea it only that only needs to be up for 10 minutes for mayhem uh, to ensue I mean the yeah. trouble with technology is that two kids in a garage can wreak havoc because they don't have to find uh, any uranium. <laughs> yeah, they don't. I mean, that's 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 definitely a risk. It's a, the technology has already proliferated, and what made the technology um, strong and what made it incredibly pro-democratic in its first 
you know, 30 or 40 years. I mean, we're focusing on sort of Facebook today uh, as being a sort of anti-democratic force. But don't forget that that um, in 1991, when there was the coup in Moscow, uh, the TV stations were banned, but all the stories about what was going on went out over the internet and in text format. So it has been this tremendously uh, democratizing uh, technology, but in order to do that, it had to be vulnerable. And so there are vulnerabilities all over the place. Uh, and, and we have to recognize that there is a lot of proliferation. So what do you do about that? So you talked about vigilance. I think vigilance is, is really, really important. The, the idea that there is perhaps an observatory uh, of threats uh, that can be shared um, amongst, amongst allies. But I think there are three other things that need to happen. So the first is that uh, you, you need to work to create trust and to create trust between the major operators at many, many levels. So between nation states, between the network operators, between the equipment manufacturers, just having them talk to each other more frequently with a, with a sense that we are not entirely always going to cooperate. We might be competing Yeah, no, I, I totally well. agree with that. Yeah. And, and then the other two are the idea of um, that we need to have some form of regulation or liability around um, the sanctity of our of our networks. I mean, right now I can connect my house to the internet and mm. I don't take any cyber insurance for any of the losses that might uh, emerge. I mean, I, actually mm. I happen to for a variety of reasons, but, but many people don't. And, and I think we've, we have ignored this entire batch of, um, uh, of threats. We're coming sort of the end of this podcast, but there is this thing about tech, uh, about kind of the changes it really brings about. So, you know, I was weirdly thinking about this uh, yesterday, just walking around my house thinking, you know, it's a relatively small house, but compared to people who lived 100 years ago, I lived like a prince, you know, guaranteed heating, uh, lights and so on, you know, and food coming in at very cheaply and that kind of thing kind of basics but arguably Azim having 12 electric lights in his study is not a kind of exponential growth in your quality of life compared to Azim 100 years ago having 12 candles in his study and there's something about this awesome the awesome technology breakthroughs that are happening helping us hail a taxi more easily <laughs> uh, there's sort of you know slight bathos about all this yeah. Uh, so even though you hate to make predictions and mm. uh, or certainly about quantum, I mean, I guess for me, if we were sitting here in 50 years time with every device being a sort of AI device, some of it would be extraordinary convenience. We'd all have effectively two or three personal assistants uh, living with us who would be scheduling mm -hmm. our meetings, ordering our food and so on and so forth. That's fine, but not much, you know, not earth chattering uh but we might also have a life expectancy of 150 because of the kind of medical breakthroughs so i guess mm -hmm. if we're looking at kind of the end game of tech as it were and where we're going does it all come down to kind of health well i, th I think a lot comes down to, to health but um a, a lot also um uh comes down to how it shifts our our values um, and 
you know, we, we develop tools and the tool, tools shape us. Uh, and so it's no surprise that we start to see things like the widening of the franchise uh, in the, at the 20th century uh, alongside greater urbanization and levels of education uh, and, and, you know, a bunch of other things that were enabled by changes in, in technology. So, of course, from, a, from a, a numerical standpoint, we would expect uh, to see the right kind of breakthroughs in personalized medicine and active monitoring of our health conditions uh, and, you know, finally figuring out the aging circuitry uh, that, that means that we haven't really increased human lifespans in the last 60 or 70 years. We've increased the average longevity, but not the maximum lifespan and you know we should we should make progress on that over the next 50 years i think the the interesting questions become turn into what are the things that we end up valuing um and how do the, do those change our cultural uh, affordances and the way we create reasons and stories for behave for behaving in the way that we we do and a simple example is just that we see that as societies get richer and they increase the amount of education they have, they women um, emancipate, and as they start, as women start to um, uh, have those those freedoms that, that men have had, uh, birth rates start to come down, and mm. then the the value of any given child or the value of having lots of children uh, in, inverts in a sense. Yeah, and, and so so I think the really for me the arrival of greater longevity is a fantastic scientific uh, exploration and, and I'm sure that we will figure out how to do it but I think we also need to be asking the questions and exploring the questions around what does that actually do to our fundamental values and and then importantly and I think we have seen this in, in our kind of political sphere over the last four or five years the fact that rapid change makes lots of people uncomfortable whatever that change is and they will make themselves heard and so then the question is, given that we're heading into that period of really rapid change over, over decades and, and not months, how do we have to change those underlying mechanisms of uh, participation and accountability and, and governance uh, I, so that when we look forward in 50 years, and Ed, I, I hope you'll, be, you'll still be with us, you'll have another 70 years to run. Um, so true. How, how will our, what we value uh, have changed in that time and what 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 process did we use to get there in a fair way well the other thing that technology will do but i don't i'm not going to talk about it because it opens up a whole new 40 minute <laughs> discussion and it's something that you focus on in the exponential view is climate change so i think that this has been a fantastic discussion for me because it's actually helped to clarify my thinking i'm sort of slightly bugged by obviously the way the world is going and i'm slightly bugged about how tech while it's changing our lives is not uh you know it's not kind of it's sort of about convenience and consumer convenience but i do think the ultimate focus uh is on how can tech dramatically increase our health but also tech will save the planet discussed yes also the great opportunity but that is a whole new podcast so i'm going to leave it on that note it's like and it's a perfect note to end on series one because it's, it ends on a cliffhanger <laughs> and maybe we'll open, we'll open next season with a focus on climate change 
So Azim, thank you so much. Can I remind people, Exponential View is the name of your newsletter. How many subscribers now? It's uh, approaching 200,000 on the, the two channels, yeah. So if you're not subscribing to Exponential View, you are definitely being left out of the party. So I would urge everyone to subscribe to Exponential View, which also includes a podcast. And thank you so much, Azim, for being the bookend, the dramatic bookend to my first series of podcasts. Uh, Ed, it's been a pleasure to speak with you and I'm going to hop off now and head to Apple Podcasts and give you a five-star review. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.